Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. It's January 2024, a new year and a new season of Tourpreneur Podcasts. And we thought to kick off a brand new year, we would start with a brand new format of a podcast. If you know Tourpreneur and you know myself and Peter Syme and Chris Doris, who I'm here with, you know that we are obsessed with tinkering, with design, with experimentation, with trying new things. And today you are going to be listening to Tourpreneur's first ever Tourpreneur call-in show. The idea behind this is really simple. We've just reached out to our community, asked them to record little sound bites of questions and thoughts, concerns about our industry. And then we are going to respond to them live on the air. And to add a little intrigue to it, I am the only one that knows what the content of these questions are. Christoris, Peter Syme, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Good to see you all again. And all the best of 2024 to everyone. Good to be back. So it's a new year. I'm just wondering, before we get into the calls, Chris, Peter, what is on your mind right now in the worlds of tour businesses, in the worlds of marketing, in the worlds of whatever is rolling through your brain from the tour business coaching calls that we are having? Um, just wondering what's on your mind. Chris, what's going yeah, on in yeah. marketing right now? Just in terms of marketing, you know, I've, I've actually already conducted one of the um, coaching calls last week and with a, a really good number of people joining the call, all looking for ways to market the business in 2024. Um, some have had a good year last year, um, some maybe not so much, just depending on the destination they're from. Um, but no, we're giving some good advice and insights in terms of what are the sort of trends coming up and things like that in terms of marketing going forward and the rise of solo female travelers, for example, right, is huge and it's got set to grow even more in uh, 2024 as well. So some of the callers were, were really ecstatic about that and hearing all about that. And we're seeing um, a lot of destinations, um, not everyone, but mostly in Europe, um, a lot of destinations, their um, off-seasons literally been wiped out um, because there is no off-season anymore. Um, pretty much for a lot of these destinations, people are traveling um, way well, well past the typical times, and we're just waiting for airlines. No, no, Peter's in Croatia just now. It's empty there because there are no flights really to Croatia at this time of year from from where we are. So we're just waiting for airlines to catch on and realize that look, these places are people wanted to go to these places out of season because that people are no longer bound by the uh, the travel of just only traveling and in, and in, in seasons and things like that. So yeah, so that was part of the conversation last week. Um, but one of the main ones. Um, is something I posted up the other day. You know, we've all just been used to GA4. We've all had to get changed changed over to that. And uh, you know, there was deadlines for that coming in uh, in the last year and stuff. Well, now it's about email. Um, mostly affects uh, subscription emails like your MailerLite, your MailChimp, Nutshell, or if you're using any other CRM system or anything like that. You really need to make sure that you, your DNS settings of your domain name, make it a bit technical for some here, but your DNS settings and your domain name are up to date. You need to have an SPS. You need to have a DMARC. Uh, and you also need to have a DKIM uh, added to your DNS. If you don't, then there's a good chance your emails won't be delivered. But I'm also saying that this also needs to be added to things like if you're using Google Workspace for your normal emails, you also need it to add it to that as well. Because I'm already seeing, in fact, this morning, I was helping a couple of clients um, helping out with their email deliverability. Uh, deliverability. Emails weren't just being sent or not being received to certain clients and certain customers of theirs. So I had to go in and update some of their DNS settings. So it is affecting normal email as well. So we posted stuff up on the newsletter as well as on the Facebook group. There'll be stuff in the show notes below. 
um, about a guide of how you can create these and get them added to your domain name. So if you are struggling with email and you're figuring, you're just finding out that now some of your emails aren't being delivered, that'll probably be the reason why, because it's coming into force on the 1st of February, 2024. So not long. It's, it's part of the general anxiety we have of being able to reach our customers and now it's hit email, which is, mm -hmm. is this thing even showing up? And it's really hard to know that because it's just a one-sided imperfect look at whether your emails are landing in your inbox. So do everything you possibly can. And all that stuff is at the DNS level, isn't it? So it's yeah, just- Yeah, yeah. And that's why we always, important. yeah. And that's why we always bang on about saying, oh, you really need to be using something like a, C, uh, a CRM system because all CRM systems, all the ones I've ever used, will tell you if a customer has opened up the email or not. So allow you to see offhand, has that email been opened or have they ignored it? And if they've ignored it, there's a good chance of maybe just never seen it and you can try to chase them up or give them a call or something like that. So a CRM system will at least give you that information um, in case you're worried about emails not getting to them. Another fundamental thing to know about that, I feel like, is understanding the difference between a marketing email and a transactional email and the way they get delivered differently, especially with your RedStack, whether they're using your domain or the domain of the RedStack, who's the, who's the actual sender? Uh, is there an intermediary like SendGrid or something in between there? Is it being sent directly from your inbox? There is a lot around this. I feel like just talking through this right now, uh, we should probably organize an email uh, call pretty soon with tour printers in the next couple of weeks to um, give them that checklist, like to yeah. give them those resources. Yeah. Good, good. All right, we'll launch that as soon as this is done. Pete, what's on your mind there in Croatia? normal but not normal so we've all been this last three years since covid which has been three whole years now nothing's been normal about travel we've either had no travel destinations recovering destinations booming other destinations not recovering so everybody was thinking and hoping and praying that 2024 was going to be the first year of a normal travel industry since 2019, whatever normal is. And I was off that mindset as well. However, the world's a funny place. And this year we have over 2 billion people going to the ballot box in various democracies around the world. And not everybody's going to be happy with the outcomes of that. And we're going to get kicked back from that. We have wars kicking off all over the world. So this year of normality may not be perfectly normal for other reasons than what the last three years have been normal and uh, not been normal for. And we're already seeing it. We've got members who are in Ecuador who are suddenly losing business mm. hand over fist. We've had members in Jordan, members in Egypt because of what's kicked off in Israel. And of course, over the last couple of years and people in Ukraine and the surrounding countries, Romania and Bulgaria being impacted, Georgia being impacted from there as well. So my thought for this year is, although I'm very positive of 2024 from a travel volume and a travel profitability potential, I think operators should be preparing for shocks and disruption because I think this is going to be a year, and 2025 as well, a year of shock and disruption. I don't think it's going to be shock. I hope it's not going to be shocks on a global basis like COVID was, but in various regions of the world, there's going to be shocks and disruption. So scenario planning in your business on how you're going to deal with things if things go south, I think is absolutely essential because you do not need to look far in the world at the moment to see other members in our community who are having a really bad time. What kind of practical things go into scenario planning that an operator should be thinking about? The first, I mean, everybody should know this now, having lived through COVID, the ones who operated pre-COVID and then got caught in COVID. Who did well in COVID? those who had money in the bank. And it's as simple as that. If you've built up a reserve in your business because you've been generating good cash flow, there's a temptation in the community and a temptation in tour operators to reinvest in the business all the time. So the cash pile light because they're piling back into the business because they're growing. Again, I'm in Croatia working with operators discussing about spending ridiculous amounts of money on new boats because they're doing really well. So they want to buy new boats, more new boats. But you need to make sure you've got a pile of cash there that's going to see through X months. And I would say the minimum now, minimum would be six months cash flow to make your business stand on its own if things go, go pear-shaped. 
building different products for different environments, as we should have all learned in COVID. Certain products and certain experiences just did not work in COVID. Other ones did. So being flexible enough and having a range of products that you can switch on and switch off experience-wise, depending on the situation that you're in. All situations that go south come with lots of pain, but as we've found out with COVID, they always come with lots of opportunities as well. And many of our members, many operators, did exceedingly well in a very disruptive time because they were innovative and came up with the right experiences, the right products, be them live if they could, or be them online if they couldn't. So having, a range, having cash in the bank, one. Having a range of experiences that you can adapt within days to, to suit the situation you find yourself in is the second one for sure. Yeah, I think that product experimentation is so important. And a lot of times when I'm talking to operators, what I see is they're experimenting or, or creating products in kind of a pasta on the wall sort of approach, just see what sticks and then like, oh, that works. Whereas there's a little bit of a science to it. And one of the simplest things I can do uh, that I think you can do is like, think about your audience, think about the product and only tinker with one of them at the t at a time. Uh, so there was just a job post on the tour printer job board about uh, a virtual tour guides uh, company needed them. And they said the guides, when they're doing them, um, can make $6,000 a week. And had a lot of emails of people's jaw dropping and I happen to know this company and they're selling virtual experiences totally differently designed, but also they're, they're selling them to corporate market. And you don't just land on that design of a virtual tour and the corporate market at the same time, they started selling them to human beings and selling your standard ones. And they evolved their market, tested their products in new markets, and then evolved the product itself once they found a market that was that that had shown validity and i think um um i think taking that incremental approach and understanding that you can track this and iterate uh um can yield some pretty astounding results yeah and virtual although it boomed during covid and then obviously a huge amount of it died afterwards if you extrapolate the technology it's coming down the pipe forward Virtual is going to make a comeback, even in a normal travel world, because the technology improves in virtual. What you're going to be able to do in a virtual world is going to be very different from what you can do today. So even in a normal good travel year, virtual has got a growth pipeline going forward because there's a lot of people in the world who cannot travel, who want to travel, who are interested in travel, but cannot travel for either health reasons or financial reasons. That is a big number of people. And as these virtual tours technology of how they can immerse the guests in it develop, there is a market for virtual tours going forward for sure. You know, here's another thing on the idea of corporate virtual tours. Well, in the corporate world, what are they doing? They're meeting virtually to do team building, maybe to do uh, some sort of DEI diversity training. There might be some specific reason that they have to attend these virtual sessions. And so if you can come in as an experienced designer and transform what that corporate training looks like, that's a way to leverage your expertise, maybe your guides, maybe the fact that you're in a special place and deliver a message that otherwise would be a boring Zoom call. And so I would say, don't think of yourself as only like a travel experience provider to travelers. Think of what the meat is that you're able to deliver in a new and surprising way for some of these markets that are still ripe for innovation. Oh, for sure. It's not just corporates as well when it comes to virtual tours. Now, if you, if you think about everything else that can be done with that, you know, schools is a big one. You know, if you can do stuff around travel and different destinations that they can use in various schools and universities and colleges, that they can then show people and uh, their, their students and things like that, if they're trying to study tourism or stuff like that then and then to see how a guide does it well or the guide doesn't do it well and all these other things as well there's so many things that you can do with virtual tours for for so many different sectors and um, it's just thinking a little bit outside the box for sure yeah i think we love to box ourselves in like mm. i'm a tour operator that creates tours and we're watching this world in which there's these there's these words like retreat or corporate event or um tour or uh, 
you know, whatever these, whatever these words are. And actually we're watching kind of a blending and a blurring of all of these concepts together and what you're doing, if you're providing experiences can speak to and connect with these audiences in new and creative ways. End of the day, it's all content. A tour is content. No, that, that's what it is. I mean, you, when you take it right down to the meat and bones. So if you, if you can provide that content in the different ways that people prefer to consume content, then you're going to win out. Yeah, and even more than content, I think like you're selling connection, you're selling humans mm -hmm. being a, a sense of discovery and excitement. And whether that takes the form of a class or a walking tour or a hike or a retreat is almost incidental to sort of what you're selling. And the better you can sell that the, is, is dependent to think on the connection that you have with a certain audience rather than just kind of trying to blast the world with your generic tour, um, which is, which we all know has become increasingly difficult and <laughs> unfulfilling. Um, good. Let's get to our calls because I'm sure some of these themes will continue to float through our calls. So here is the name of the game. I'm going to play the calls. They are no longer than about 60 seconds. You're going to listen and then we'll see what you gentlemen think. Are you ready? Let's go. go on. All right. First one. Hey guys, okay. it's Sarah Covey from Vibrant Travelers. My question for you is how to achieve excellent marketing reach once you have tapped out all of your family and friends. Thanks. All right. We know Sarah Covey. Um, she's a member of our coaching community and uh, she's developing, I think, women's only uh, tours and they're multi-day. So um, I think she's doing the right thing, for, uh, which most multi-day operators should do, which is like a friends and family around to kick off your mm -hmm. business. Obviously, the easiest thing to do, make a free Facebook post and you probably have like-minded customers that you're creating for in your own network. But then you sell that out you reach that so what next yeah i tend to disagree with the friends and family thing you won't be surprised to hear i think friends and family are great for proving the logistical functions of a tour or an experience if it's a multi-day to make sure all the must happen things actually work in a way that satisfies people the buses turn up on time the accommodation works all of them logistical things in a tour, I think using friends and families to test that at the beginning of your tour operator journey is a great thing to do as long as they're honest and you make sure they're honest about the feedback. I'm not convinced on them by any means, shape and form as being a, a great marketing route, whether, unless you're some sort of weirdo with 5,000 friends, and I know lots of people in Facebook have 5,000 friends, but they don't really. They have a hundred max and they have about 20 real friends or 10. Think, yeah, it's 5,000 acquaintances. Uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. So yes, there is the like thing between connection with your friends who like to do that. There is that, but that's not, apart from testing and the quality, that is not a business model for building on from a marketing perspective. You really, really need to nail your real customer persona and customer profile who would probably when you do it isn't going to be exactly like your uh, friends and family and why do i say that because a lot of their operators are targeting people who will pay a set price and their friends and family are probably not in that group who want to pay that set price and they're the, a lot of the stuff their operators are selling is quite expensive and so is that your friends and family? Is that that area you operate in? Or are you selling up the luxury end, particularly in the multi-day going out there? So the persona is often different. So I think you have to move from this friends and family thing into real customers as quickly as physically possible and make that jump. Uh, and like when I say quick, I think they're there just to test the logistics. After that, you just go straight into real customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I want to be clear that I didn't mean that that's a fundamental building block of your business, well, but rather I see a lot of a lot of daydreamer operators that spend three years designing and creating and thinking about a tour, whereas just get the idea of putting something out there and selling it to someone off and running and use it as information and also as a jumpstart to just feel like you're you're leading the trip. Mm -hmm. 
No, I was going to come to that a little bit differently. Um, sorry, people, just sort of saying in terms of using your friends and family, what I've, I've, I've advised this before to operators as well, especially those who are really starting out and don't have a customer base already. Use your family and friends, but use it to get content like videos and reviews and things like that. So you've at least got something there that you can then use in your marketing channel. So get them to leave Google reviews, get them to leave video reviews, and they'd be able to use that as part of your marketing. So that's where you can really utilize your family and friends to help you with that side of things, purely just to give you content and purely give you something that you can then hopefully attract the customer. So you're looking to attract. Um, so part of that's what, and I think, you know, what Sarah's probably doing, or hopefully doing that is one of the reasons why she used her family friend was to build up that content and build up that sort of trust factor, um, sort of really sort of important element to it. But in terms of attracting new customers, yeah, there's going to be a bit of test and measure. Um, I, I always bang on about Facebook, but Facebook is hands down the best platform to do that. So run some ads on Facebook, you no, know, run some retargeting ads, run some uh, ads targeting specific, you no, know, keep, keep it fairly broad to begin with. And it is going to take time. Keep your, your initial ad fairly broad to begin with. Have it just for females only, because uh, I mentioned at the start of the, of the, of the podcast, you know, solo travelers and, and female solo travelers is growing over the last year and it's growing, it's set to grow even more next year. Private groups, you no know, black tomato, um, saw an increase of private group tours increased by 33% last year. So things like that, if it's private, if it's uh, solos, uh, solo females, targeting that, keep the, the, fair, the age groups fairly open until you see who inquires, build up that data, and then start to narrow it down towards the age groups that you feel you're going to get the customers from. So that would be part of it, and then retargeting them with other ads to try and get them onto the tours and various other things. That will help you figure out which audiences, which age groups, and everything else, and what their interests are um, fairly quickly. To be honest, if you keep that running for, for, for say, a month or so or a couple of months, uh, probably say run it for two or three months, the ad campaigns before you make any sort of strong decisions from there. But a Facebook group, run a women's only travel Facebook group set to you know, your particular travel sort of um, niche uh, and build that up as well. Again, that will take time, but it's, as we've seen with Tourpreneur, it's a great way to interact with customers. It's a great way to interact with, with others. They are more engaged rather than a Facebook page. Facebook pages are pretty much dead now. They're just there as a advertising platform just to make sure that your, your company's still alive um, more than anything else. You'll hardly ever get any bookings from a Facebook page. Um, so Facebook groups is where it's at. So it's thinking about the ads that you want to run targeting the, the demographics, and then using that data to pinpoint the age groups that are more popular, and then maybe setting up that Facebook group to get more and more interaction with the, the type of customers that you're, you're looking to attract. Something new operators often get wrong and I understand why, because they're obsessed with the product and the experience and making sure it's right. When you're just kicking off and you're trying to get this starting, if you measure your time and you ain't spending 80% of your time on sales and marketing, it's not going to kickstart or it's going to kickstart very, very slowly. Every single day you get up, you need to allocate 80% of that time onto marketing activities. You really shouldn't have any other activities to do. Because if you've just starting off and you've not got lots and lots of customers, your sole job is business development, marketing every day. And they, I'm, a lot of the new operators I've worked with underappreciate the volume of information and content that we've got to put out there. And I'm not just saying take lots of crappy content out there. It has to be quality. But you have to be producing and getting content on social and get engagement 365 days a year. Every single day you need to be engaging. And websites up to date, social going out all the time, business development, which is not online is just important. So this, this operator we're discussing here, reasonably high end women, end women only wine tours to Italy, if I remember correctly, I would be speaking to every Italian restaurant that was high end in the district. Who's the wine supplier? Who's buying wine boxes in off Italian wine? There's a thousand ways you can be developing business. You need to knock on a lot of, and this is door knocking. You need to knock on a lot of doors. Most of it's going to be no, 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 no. But suddenly you build relationships and they can be there. But 80% of your day is marketing until you get your machine working. Once you've had 200 customers, 300 customers, 400 customers, and you get a repeat engine going, your time on marketing can be reduced, but you have to kickstart with a huge amount of your time on marketing. So. I see, I have a lot of friends who are tour operators or who are leading trips or whatever. And I see a lot of these kind of posts, Hey, I'm going to this city for five days, or I'm going, I've created this trip. You should join me. And I feel like right away, it's just, it's a pitch. And I think 
in, in, in line with sort of what you've been saying, I think any multi-day operator should be thinking about point of difference and point of view. They should be doing something and saying something different than what feels the same. And I mean, women only is incredibly crowded now. Uh, it was interesting in original maybe five years ago, but now it's so popular. And so what is it about your audience and the way that you're speaking to them that you're, uh, um, um, that, that makes you interesting to them when they see you come across their feed, their feed, whether it's a Facebook ad or friends and family or whatever, and lean into that and also lean into whatever other people aren't doing. If you're doing wine, don't advertise the trip, advertise that you are, uh, you spent more time in Champagne region than anybody that you know. Uh, outside of people who live in Champagne, and I am just going to do a Champagne Zoom call uh, with anybody that loves Champagne or whatever, and teach you about it. Host an online class, whatever it is, but but make connections that are building that community that are a little bit different, and making sure your point of difference, I think, is like able to be said in a single sentence, and people can look and say, "Oh, that that's me." Mm -hmm. I think sometimes in a quest to sell your first tours to a general market, you go very general, you go wide and general, and then it actually appeals to nobody. And it's easy to just skip past whatever social media platform you're advertising on. Yeah, no, obviously no, Sarah, and it's part, part of it, which in terms of marketing will basically be hard trying to market and build up our own personal brand as well. Cause a lot of people will book because of her. Um, rather than what's on the tour or what's on the experience. And at the end of the day, you know, if, if, if Sarah's marketing this from the, 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 the sort of perspective of you're not just going on a tour, you're actually going out on a, a multi-day wine experience with a qualified sommelier. Now, that in itself you know, will help sell, you know, hopefully help you sell some more bookings and, and more, more experiences and things like that, rather than just saying you're a, you're, a, you're a wine tour, for example. I would probably step away from that, that phrase, wine tour, and almost like you're going on a private experience with a sommelier and things like that and play along those sort of lines. So part of it will be building up that personal brand and that's where the Facebook group can really come into it. You know, you're highlighting your your experience, your knowledge, you're sharing some of that knowledge. And as Pete says, you no, know, because of that type of uh, product and experience, that's ripe for uh, for re repeat customers. So how can you make that more like a, a club where you're, you're bringing people time and time again who always want to take out your tours every single year going to different regions across Italy and all these different things as well. So it's almost like making up, building your own community as, as it were um, around you and around the brand as well. So, so right. since we're talking next. wine, before we move on to the next one, since we're talking wine, myself and Chris will be in Bulgaria later this year in April, mm -hmm. I think that's correct, Chris? April, yeah. Both, yeah. both speaking at the International Wine Conference, Tourism Conference, so a lot of wine operators who are into tourism uh, Clodov in Bulgaria, myself and Chris will be there. So if there's anybody listening who's into wine, food. Hi guys, my name is Linda. I'm the managing director for Pomelo okay. Adventures. Yeah, it's a ferry company based in Uganda. And we run towards wildlife safaris and mountain growing safaris in, in mm -hmm. Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania and Rwanda. So my question is, um, actually numerous uh, Googling agents, travel agents in, in USA, in UK, in Europe, all everywhere trying to reach these agents so that we can collaborate and and work together. They send me guests, I as their DMC and brand handling to operator. After numerous attempts trying to reach these people, I've I've really failed. So my question is how do I get to the right travel agent for my business? Someone who'll say, Oh, I have guests that want to travel to Uganda or Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas, I'll send them to you, handle them, and at least they go share on the prices and, and all that. This is what uh, our company needs right now. How, how do I write the right email? How do, I do, how do I write the perfect email? How do I make the perfect contact to a potential agent that will uh, not blue tick me, as, as they say these days, but will read my email and actually respond. Thank you. Safari That's operator comes up, <laughs> comes up all the time. 
yeah. especially the uh, African safari operator, because mm -hmm. it's a very popular tour. There are a lot of safari operators. There are a lot of U.S., Europe-based audiences, which are um, often courted by them because they're wealthy and oftentimes those customers are booking via travel agents. Uh, so how do you reach travel agents? What, what is the perfect email? So the first hey, thing you I'd, want to kick us off. Yeah. The first thing I'd say on this is one, you have to make an assumption. You have to assume that everybody you're contacting, another 20, 30, 40 operators are also contacting, right? Because that is the reality. Right. If you're a tour operator who's outbound or a travel agent who's selling these type of experiences, they are being contacted every single day right, by people trying to get them to be a reseller for them. Therefore, if you start with that assumption, that will then make you think, how can I stand out and be different? And for me, sending an email doesn't make you different. That makes you the same as everybody else. Mm -hmm. So... That old fashioned thing that we used to use years ago before technology called the phone is a fantastic thing. Speak to people. People will be surprised when you actually call them up. Do outbound sales by the phone to get these relationships. The other thing is, as we all know, and it's difficult sometimes with costs and uh, visa restrictions, but in these type of tours, multi-day African inbound, there is no better way than meeting the suppliers face-to-face. -face. Whether it's in Af African-based conferences or whether it's in Europe or US-based conferences, there is absolutely no better way than meeting the buyers, which will be your retailers and sellers face-to-face. -face. There's big investment, it takes time. There's often visa restrictions for people coming out of Africa to do it, but it has to be attempted because it's the number one way you will close deals with meeting people. To ask, a tour agent to start reselling your 10-day guerrilla tour when they have no real knowledge of you as an operator, apart from maybe your website and some reviews, is a big ask. It's a big ask. They need more trust than that. They need more comfort feeling than that. And that comes by meeting people face-to-face -face and demonstrating that you can really, really look after their, their customers. Now, I'm not saying don't do digital out outreach by email, a uh, there's ways of doing that as well. And I notice because of the incoming I get and we get from Tourpreneur, a lot of it is just thrown out to anybody that does travel. Mm -hmm. You've really, really got to research the person you're speaking to. And if they don't sell your destination at the moment, but sell similar destinations, yes, they're a warm lead. If they're already selling your destination, the chances of them buying you are pretty slim. You're all, your job there is to become the number two. Admit to them, say, we know you're already selling this distillation. I know I'm probably not going to be your choice, but can I keep in contact with you because I want to be your number two choice if anything goes wrong, if you're already doing that. But you really need the research phase to me in this is as difficult and as hard as the actual outreach phase. The more accurate your research is, the more conversion your outreach will get. Yeah, you know, I, I think... Agents are bombarded, first of all. I think second of all, I see a lot of immediate selling. Here are all my packages and here are all of the prices as step one of the relationship. And who wants that? I mean, imagine sitting down on a first date and then the person sits there and enumerates all of the quirks about how they sleep in bed. Remember, I'm a snorer. I've got, uh, you know, it's like, no, let's sit here and have a glass of wine before I decide whether to get in bed with you. So uh, like buying is literally marriage, getting in bed, creating a contract that says, I want to start selling these things on your behalf. There's no shortage of supply for that. So what makes you special? Well, a relationship building is a two-way street. So it oftentimes to see this sort of agent operator relationship where the operator is just trying to ram something down the throats of an agent and saying, do this for me. Well, what can you do for an agent? What's the needs of an agent? An agent, for example, is usually not in a destination that long. They may have done a fam trip to Uganda, but they, might, they may not know the latest of what's going on in Uganda. Or you might actually have like a secret little set of interesting suppliers or something. And 
Can you offer them, say, listen, you know, a lot has changed in Uganda in the last couple of months. Uh, here's uh, my top three, you know, things to know about Uganda or whatever. And just putting in the email and offering value to them. And then them saying, you know what, thank you so much. Let's have a conversation around that. So build a relationship with two-way street. And yeah, nothing's going to beat um, the human to human relationship attending virtuoso travel week or whatever, making that investment. It's a monetary investment. I know, I know an operator that does a road trip every year and he sells his tours through like three travel agents, but they keep him busy for the whole year. And he goes and meets them face to face every year on a road trip um, to make sure that they stay happy and stay in his pocket. So there's no, so what can you do to build that relationship? I would say. Yeah. Can I agree more? I was about to say this, uh, some of, some of things, no, the, uh, even my agency, just because it's got agency in the title, we'll, we'll get a bunch of these emails per week because they think I'm, well, I run a travel agency when it's actually, it's actually a marketing agency. And the first thing they do is say, can you please sell my tour? Here's the links to all the different tours and things like that. So it's, it's incredible. But the one thing I would, I, I would also say as well is you, a lot of them that I've came across, whether it's in Africa or whether it's in Nepal is another one, uh, Nepal rather, is another one who, who does, that does this quite often, is they'll try to force you to do communications through WhatsApp. I'm um, saying I've only talked through WhatsApp. I've never talked through email or never talked through video calls or, or anything like that or meet in person. Like that. And it's like, you'll be surprised at how many destinations across the world don't have WhatsApp on their phone. No, it's, it's quite a lot. Um, no, the UK is not huge on, on WhatsApp, for example. No, a few people use it now and again, but it's, um, but it's not used as a sales tool. It's maybe just used to talk amongst friends and things like that. So it's, 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 it's not a business tool in a lot of destinations. So you have to use the platforms of the people who you're trying to contact and you're trying to get business or, or sell, sell your, your tours and experiences through. Don't try to force them on the platforms that you only use because it's convenient to you. Yeah, you got to meet them halfway. Good. Mm -hmm. Next up. Hi, guys. I'm Alski Bottleson here in Southern California. The Stansel Iceland Tours, um, offering multi-day tours to my homeland of Iceland. And my question is, I have is a solopreneur is I'm sort of struggling with marketing strategically, creatively with the little funds. Uh, what's the best way to go to do that? Um, OTAs and other apps uh, cost money. So it's kind of not in my funds to do that. So I'm just trying to figure out um, how to market um, that way creatively and strategically with very little funds. That's it. Thanks. All right. We've got another operator. This is Esgir from Iceland. How to market creatively with very little funds. It seems to be on the minds of a lot of operators these days. Um, we know us. We know Esgir. Uh, he was at Tourpreneur Connect uh, in Seville, and he is a professional photographer. He runs multi-day trips, and he, in particular, takes absolutely stunning photographs with his people. Uh, and so thoughts, feelings about what to lean into and where to, where to think about selling your tours. Yeah. Um, in terms of marketing and a budget, you won't be surprised. It's a question that comes up all the time, uh, for me, but because he's a photographer, he's ahead, already ahead of a lot of other operators out there who don't have that type of skill, whether it's been in video or photography or anything like that. No, it's. You can be producing lots of really good content, whether it's on Instagram or on other social media platforms, on your website, you know, creating showreels of your, of your photography and things like that. And really, you no, know, as we as we all just said, all we know is as gear. You know, it's it's again, it's almost like highlighting and building up his brand and saying, look, this is what I will do for you on a tour or whatever, um, or my guys will do for you on a tour and things like that. It's almost like trying to tell their stories as well. Just pu publishing lots of good content, which. It's basically going to take time rather than money. It's writing the good content, getting photographs up there, um, highlighting videos of the types of ways that you shoot video and things like that when people were there. Just make a lot of good content and create it in a batch so that maybe you do 30 days worth of content, record it, write it, whatever that type of content is. And then you publish one a day or every couple of days and at least that way you know you've got content way ahead in advance. But the cheapest way is just basically to produce content. It, all, it takes up your time rather than monetary value unless you're running ads and things like that um, and again facebook is the cheapest platform for running ads i wouldn't waste my time if you've got a small budget on things like google search ads and anything like that try to run things on instagram or facebook trying to track those customers that you're looking for 
um, and running on that. But at the end of the day, it's all about content. You need to be producing lots and lots of really good content because that doesn't cost you anything other than time. All right, so we've got the marketing agency owner's approach. Peter? So he mentioned something there that made the hairs on the back of my neck stick up. <laughs> uh, he hasn't got the budget to go through OTAs of distribution. That means the tours are priced incorrectly. Because hmm. if you're pricing a tour that hasn't got a margin in it that can allow it to be distributed by partners, by definition, the tour hasn't got the right pricing structure. You're never going to be build, able to build up the business, scale up the business, because particularly multi-day to an in-demand destination like Iceland, and there is periods where Iceland has more business than it can cope with. It's an over-tourism destination for certain months of the year. What does that mean? It means the assets in, in country are booked out. Can the accommodations, the restaurants, stuff like that is all booked out. So it's in-demand destination. So agents are really interested in it because agents know they can sell it. Right? There's a lot of tour operator sales agents can sell Iceland. And again, I know, I know his tours, I know his media. It looks stunning. Therefore, he's going to be able to sell that to agents because of the story and the stunning media that he creates. Therefore, it has to be price correct to allow the agents the margin. They will do the selling because that's their job. But you have to build your pricing structure to allow your partners to make money. And you want these agents to make money. Why? Because they're going to stick with you year after year after year after year after year. It's not unusual to have an agent, sales agent, travel agent, or a tour operator partner for five or 10 years. So the lifetime value of them over that time with the amount of bookings they're going to give you, you just need to create pricing structure that allows them to make money and allows you to make money. Uh, because having seen his media, he's, he's, like your point, Chris, he's got a leg in the door above other mm -hmm. operators because his media is so good because that's his skill set mm -hmm. and that's his historical bit. So the pricing of the tour must be redone so you can get this out in distribution across all the distribution platforms. Otherwise, you're in for a long slog of only being direct. And I'm not saying you can't be only direct. I was mainly direct. But being direct is a hard, hard business. And you better have marketing chops and marketing skill if you want to be a completely direct business. I just visited his website and the hero tag is amazing Iceland experiences. To me, that doesn't set him apart in any way. And I look at the photos and they're pretty photos and they look like stock photography and yet they're his photos. Mm -hmm. So I would say lean into what is so incredible about landing on this website. I took these photos and so can you, if you are on this trip, it's because you want to learn how to craft unforgettable images that, you know, will, will transform your memories of a trip and also make you, you know, a hero on Facebook and at home or whatever. Um, I think, you know, this comes up all the time and it's like, I think, I think maybe some of the best books that multi-day operators, niche multi-day operators, multi-day operators that aren't intrepid or globus that aren't in the scale business, which is almost every single operator. Um, the, the books you should read are like the Seth Godin books, right? Like this is marketing or tribe because you're not selling a product, you're selling change. That's Seth, that's one of Seth's mantra. So, like, how am I going to be changed? Even if the guest isn't like thinking that consciously, that's what they're thinking. How am I going to be changed by engaging with what you offer? And I know we talk about it as the transformation economy. I don't like that word because it feels like it's all about yoga and mindfulness. Um, it's not, it's like, I'm going to come back changed because I have a sense of belonging and I'm lonely. I'm going to come back changed because I'm going to go to Iceland, have an unforgettable adventure, but I'm also going to come back and have all of these brand new skills, you know, that I can, that I can transfer to the rest of my life. I'm going to come like, there's an emotional need that a human has. Sometimes it's just status. Sometimes it's a lack, a perceived lack in their lives, but there's something that humans all emotionally need. Uh, we always need something. And what you're offering is that transformation and that fulfillment, that is not a tour, right? Like the tour happens to be the medium, but it also could be any number of other things. And so mm -hmm. I feel like the more you think about the emotional needs of your guests, and the more that you think about the kind of change that you can offer, 
and then build a tribe around that that's his other book tribe mm. then you're then you're creating a type of connection that sets you naturally apart harnesses the uniqueness of who you are and i i don't see any of that on the home page i don't see anything about that i see just packages to iceland with images that don't share the story of the fact that you are deeply deeply qualified to help people understand how to make this place come alive through through your lens he's got a video on the about page and it's beautiful meditative music and it's like a slideshow of his incredible images and i love the idea of like meditative music because I see so many of these upbeat, adventurous kind of like, all right, let's go and have an adventure. No, what if I'm selling a slower, quiet, peaceful engagement with the world through your camera lens? That would appeal to a lot of baby boomers that maybe don't want to sit there and like have to like, you know, feel like they're on some sort of like crazy adventure, but they want to just sit there for an hour and wait until the light is right. Um, so maybe you're marrying slow travel with, a demographic that doesn't want that crazy adventure, that's the beginning of a point of difference that comes through then through your storytelling. And, and, and that, I think that's laden in the website. He could bring it out in everything he does. And then you're not just blasting because I can already see an Instagram grid of his photos, but there's no storytelling attached to it, right? Then they're just photos that look like stock photo. They look like stock photography. Yeah. Um, so make sure you're messaging around that. Make sure you're, make sure you're using the caption to tell the story. I took this photo after four hours of waiting for a puffin. And then this puffin popped out at exactly this moment and whatever, if you want, if you want to learn how to connect with nature in this way, then, then, then link in bio, right? I feel like Apple does Apple does it really well. And when they talk about the camera or taking videos, they don't talk about how many megapixels it is or anything like that. They talk about how it's going to allow you to capture the moments and take better photography and do other things. It's all about what it does for the person rather than the stuff behind what it actually does. So I think that's There's also the leverage of of himself. He's based in California as a natural Icelandic individual. So He's selling to Americans across America, but obviously in California. He's based there. He understands the USA, he understands Americans, but he's an Icelandic. So he has to leverage that as well because that's his customer base. So we have a hot destination that's in huge demand. We have a, a guy with lots of uh, creative content photography skill based in a great market. There's not a lot to do here. <laughs> it really isn't. Everything is right get the tours price correctly and make contact with 10, 15, 20 agents. So you sign up four or five of them and these tours are going to sell through agents, but you've got to get the pricing correct to be able to let the agents make money. And then that agent also says, oh, I know I've got these clients and they love photography. This is the tour for them. Lean, lean, lean into that. Great. Final question, final question of the day. Ready? Hey guys. This is Rob from Trip Hacks DC Tours. I'm curious what you think about the idea that not every business needs to be a billion-dollar company and not every tour operator needs to grow to a giant multi-city operation. For those who are happy running a profitable business in a single location, what are some of the trappings to look out for to avoid getting distracted and losing focus? I love that question because there are two words that I personally hate in our industry that get battered about all the time. Growth and scale. Where do those words come from? Silicon Valley. Business owners were not talking about scaling their businesses 10 years ago or 15 years ago when you were a tour operator. They talked about loving, they talked about loving their job or maybe needing more money. But it's like we've injected this like VC terminology into our jobs and now we think that we're failing or that we're not doing enough if we're not expanding to 19 cities and leading um, 300,000 people on a tour every year. Like, like it's kind of madness because it drives people down the wrong path. And I've seen a lot of businesses fail because they try to think that it's just all about expansion and expansion and expansion. Um, and yet there's like a flip side, which is a lot of business owners that don't understand that other, that other important word, which is profit and without profitability, 
you actually can't pursue things that you're passionate about or meaningful. And I see a lot of people that have these beautiful missions in their business, uh, and yet they don't have the business structure to uh, support that mission. They're not actually profitable. They're almost running a charity or they're drowning at the expense of happy customers. And so there's some sort of medium in there and there's sort of traps and pitfalls on both sides. Pete, how does Rob avoid them? So there'll be a small amount of listeners here who fully understand what I'm just about to say because they'll have seen it. So on our huddle retreats, the last session of the retreat are on a session called the low road, middle road or high road, which is the end game. Why are you doing what are you doing? And a lot of operators don't think about why they're doing it until they're way down the journey or near the end of the journey, middle of the journey. And there is, there is no correct answer. The, the low road is where you stay small, single operator, couple of employees. Middle road is where you scale up a bit, using that horrible word scale, where you've got managers, salespeople, getting lots of guides, or the high road is where you go all in. You're in it to get as big and as scaled as you can possibly get. And by the way, we don't have any real scaled operators entrepreneur, even though we have members who are over 50 million revenue a year, they're still not big companies in the scheme of things of big companies. So we're all in the small company market and for those on their own micro company market. So all of these are a valid path going forward if it's meeting your life goals, end goals, business goals, whether it's small, whether it's an operator that's doing a couple of million and making some money or whether it's an operator shooting for the scar. They're all valid and they can all have a good uh, life for you. What you have to decide is what one you want, because what normally happens is operators start growing because they feel they have to grow, or they start seeing the, sh the shiny objects in syndrome. Oh, I could do this, I could do that, which comes with all the extra pain where they haven't actually mastered one thing. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a one destination operator who never ever employs anybody else, apart from freelance guides or freelance sport, but has a great life. And we all know guides who are earning a lot more income than operators. And it isn't all about income either. It's a balance of income and the lifestyle that you want. I wouldn't like to add up the amount of hundreds of thousands I've spent traveling the world. That is a choice to give a lifestyle I want. So every operator has to decide why they're building the business and the end game for them. And they're all valid. There isn't a right or a wrong. It's just what suits you. But if you don't think about it, you will build the wrong business. You will build the wrong business if you don't think this through. Yeah, I know yeah, this is more your, uh, your guy's bag, but just in terms of my own business, that's what I thought when I first set up my own business, um, even though it's different. But, um, no, I worked at other agencies, for example, that had 100 team members, if not 200 team members and things like that, uh, and hated working in that type of company. So I, I've now got at the stage where we've, we've grown to maybe a team of 15. That's around the maximum I ever want to grow this company. It's given me a good lifestyle. It's given me, well, uh, I'm allowed to have the, a great team around me um, without the headache of of scaling through millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of, of business, that, which I could do if I wanted to, but I don't want to do that. Because to me, I'd rather have the balance of the good lifestyle, uh, being able to travel you guys, going to various events as well without having to worry about no, lots and lots of staff that I need to take care of and things like that. So that, that you do need to think about what you, how you want your business structure. That may change throughout the years, but you do need to sort of set out in a way. Go right, I want my business to be sort of like this to give me this type of lifestyle. Uh, and that's you know, from what you're saying, Peter. That's, that's exactly how I've sort of tried to to, to run my my business as well. Yeah, I think you know, um, really good book I read. Four thousand weeks, the number of weeks we have in our life, and so. I don't think we, and, and if you're not an infant, then you might have 2,000 or 1,000 fewer. And if that's the case, then you should be asking yourself way more often than we usually do. And by we, I mean high-pressured Americans living in East Coast cities. I live in New York, uh, Washington, D.C., another level of just, yeah, you get to the grind and you just do your thing and... You don't really ask yourself a lot, like, what makes me come alive and do I feel alive? And so I think one of the traps can be your identity becomes molded around this set of assumptions you've made about, like, what being human is for you. And if you're not passionate about this and feel alive, like, there is no shame in quitting 
and leaving. And so I think one of the traps is thinking because this is the train you're on that there's no getting off. And I think a lot of times people don't quit soon enough. They don't leave uh, situations where maybe it just isn't bringing the joy, the delight, the creativity, the excitement that it brought them three, five, seven years ago. That's an independent question from whether it's profitable. If you've got a good set of profit and you know you've got a year in uh, the bank, then there's no shame. In fact, there might be everything in saying, you know what, this new year is going to bring a new adventure. I'm going to reinvest what I've done in this in a different direction for my business, for myself or whatever. And so I would say one of the traps is not, I'm not saying Rob, go quit, but uh, paying attention to those voices and remembering that being human is kind of a moonshot luck of the draw once in a once in a once in a universe's history kind of thing and so use your time wisely and and check yourself whether this is what you want the next year or three or five to be what, what one of the issues i'd sometimes see with business owners as well um and and it's something you have to sort of learn is a lot of, especially when you're starting out is saying no to new business it's, I mean, you have to get to a stage where you have to basically say no look don't want to take on a new business or like for us, you have a waiting list or something like that. You know, it's it's actually okay to knock back business once you get to a certain stage because you know you some some business owners will just take in business for the sake. Oh, right, I'm going to make some money here, but then they actually think, what's this actually going to do to my business? Am I just going to be a busy fool, as, as Pete likes to say, or am I actually going to enhance my business or anything like that? So it's actually it's just thinking about what you're bringing in, what type of business you want to run, and it's not it's not bad to say no from from time to time. The one thing I'd say. And although I still stick by all routes, the low road, the middle road, the high road are valid. Everyone thinks the low road where you stay small is the least risky road. Whereas I always classified that as the highest risk road. road. Because you're an individual and you do not know what's going to happen in your life going forward. And divorce happens to 50 odd percent of people. Accidents happen to a huge amount of people. Illness happens to a whole, if you are the business, and you generate the income and it's all about you and something happens, your business has gone. And to me, when going back to my point at the, very, at the beginning of this podcast, risk, I always viewed that as a high, high risk that I wasn't prepared to accept on a business model. So I had to design a different type of business to mitigate the risk of that I was taking out the business still generated. That was just a given for me. I couldn't. My brain would not allow me to work in any other way because I judged the risk of me being taken out or me not having enough interest or passion to be able to do it year after year after year. I had to create something that was going to generate revenues, profit at a level. I wasn't central to the business. Because to me, if you are central in today's world, well, it's always been risk. But in today's world, I think it's a huge risk. Yeah, I think... That speaks also to a, a marketing question as well. Make sure that it's not entirely built around you as a personal individual to the point that the minute you're not there, the customer is dissatisfied and you're locked and loaded into your business. It's a fine line because you also don't want to jump to depersonalization too quickly. And I see, especially like, you know, Askiers, Iceland, uh, Safari operators, Sarah, where some people end up trying to look too big too quickly and it ends up looking like an impersonal tour company, just like everybody else. And you, you, you lose the sort of heart and soul of like what actually makes yourself unique, even if it just becomes a founder story, but that level of storytelling and, and you're right, you've, you've got to create the mechanisms to make sure that it's a choice every day that you're delighting and making to show up for your guests but that your business can succeed without you having to do that. And on that life-altering note, let's uh, all go and reflect on whether we want to return for another tourpreneur call-in show. I like the format. I like this. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's yeah, fun. Get, I, like it, more. I think you should definitely keep it that we do not know the questions. I like getting questions. Oh, yeah. I do know. I, I like to do things straight out my head so keep not giving me these questions in advance for sure yeah i'm the same yeah. but it's also why we won't ever do these live because we never know it'll come out of your head pete yes i i, I went through this whole podcast without swearing once i have you know <laughs> <laughs>
I know. Their first one without an explicit label on it. Uh, great. All right. As always, show notes and everything else are available on tourpreneur.com. If you are not enrolled in our Google Things to Do free course, then you are not doing enough for your business right now. Go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And we have business coaching and professional memberships available, which unlock all of the videos that you could possibly need and 150 articles and everything else from the industry's best experts. And it's all unbiased. We are not in the pocket of any companies for giving you advice. We are raw, we are real, and it's all there to move your business forward. We want you to succeed. So as always, join our Facebook group, reach out, become a member. And until next time, we'll see you in the metaverse. <laughs> Thank you.